Welcome to episode three of the Inclusion Initiative, a Jedi AAEM podcast, a production of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Each month, this podcast will feature established leaders as well as a diverse group of members in the specialty of emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Kimberly Brown, current AAEM at-large board member, speaks with AAEM past president, Dr. Amin Antoine Kazi. All right. So it's morning where I am. So good morning. And you're in Beirut. So what time is it there? 6.20 p.m. 6.20 Yeah, I'm eight hours ahead of you. Okay. And I know you by your full name, Dr. Kazi. I call you Antoine. I call you Amin. What should we, how should I address you today? (laughs) Well, uh, People in the United States call me Kazi. They refer to me by my, by my last name, Kazi. Maybe because it's close to Kamikaze. Maybe because, <laughs> <laughs> maybe because I've, had one, I've had one too many of those. But, um, you know, my name is, my real name is Amin Antoine Nabih Kazi. Nabih is my dad. Amin is my first name, referring to the, the word actually in Arabic and in Lebanese like a man, it means trustworthy. Uh, Trustworthy is the name Amin. So it's a strong name. It's a very strong name. Yeah, it is a strong name. Uh, My middle name is Saint Antoine because I was baptized in Saint Anthony of Padua. uh, Saint Anthony uh, the Great, but my patron is actually Saint Anthony of Padua. So um, it's funny because Saint Anthony the Great ran away to the desert and was a hermit for 40 years in Egypt, hiding from women, they say. But a St. Anthony of Padova, <laughs> St. Anthony of Padova is a pattern of everything that gets lost. So if you do something, you got to play St. Anthony of Padova. Nevertheless, I've always had a difficulty choosing which name, because even in the war in Lebanon, people refer to me as Kazi and mm-hmm. or the Damurian, Damuri, referring to my birth town. Or refer to me as Moni, which is actually the nickname I carried in my family till I actually Moni, yes, like money. But I'm about to say it sounds like money to me, which if I had that nickname, I would love it. Everybody would just call me money. So <laughs> in your case, Kimberly, I can see that. That's exactly. <laughs> I'm glad you're thinking that way. Um, so yeah, it was odd when I arrived in to the United States, I had to choose between Amin and Antoine. And I realized it was easier to get people to talk to me uh, with the name Antoine than the name Amin, because I can tell you this was the 80s. Being Lebanese and having the name Amin wasn't an easy name to carry. Hmm. It was Why is that? Because of the you know, uh, mass casualty bombing, all the terrorist attack on, attacks in the 80s on US citizens, US Marines, they killed more than the fanatics in the area here, uh, killed more than 250 of them in one suicide bomb. Uh, so car bombing. Uh, there were over 20 of um, 20 Americans taken as hostages. So the, the media was totally focusing on that. Uh, with the considering the fact that I'm actually uh, uh, you know born and raised uh, Christian Catholic and massacred by the same foes who abducted the uh, Americans and killed them. You know I felt odd sometimes and strange because while I realized I, I met many people who were very tolerant and very supportive and 
you know, the world was around me was so complex. I was in my 20s, young 20s. It was easy to look at this young man from the Middle East with a thick accent. And so I choose between the two names. I chose Antoine. Okay. At least I, I sounded more like the name of a hairdresser, but nevertheless, you know, Antoine would make people think that maybe this, you know, would ask me, where are you from? And have me tell them the story. Right. Uh, even then, I would, was once in a while subject to situations which were quite un uncomfortable, um, forms of discrimination, I would, say, I would say, but that were matched by 10 times more people who actually extended help to me just because they wanted to help me, considering them I'm actually coming from a diverse background. Yeah. So I can't, I can't really uh, have to be fair. Um, so let me pause you for a second, because you jumped into so many things that I was going to ask you about, but I guess let me backtrack. So for everybody that's listening, um, Dr. Amin Antoine Nabi Kazi um, is a former president of, um, of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. I met you personally for the first time um, in Malta um, at MEMC, which you are still um, very heavily involved with the the planning and the actual implementation and the the, the running of that conference. And so that was my first MEMC. Um, but as we started talking, you were sharing with me about your, you know, currently you're still back in Lebanon. I know you spent some time in the U.S., things like that. So you shared a lot already about your background. Um, and I guess now kind of picking back up from what you were sharing with me, I'd really like to know how you got from Lebanon to the United States to do your um, your U.S. you know training as far as the medical side is concerned. Sure. Well, it's going to get heavy. So if you ask me these questions, okay. Uh, so I went to to a Jesuit school. I went to a Jesuit school, uh, the top uh, Jesuit school. My mom was a teacher. My grandma, grandpa was a teacher. A lot of teachers in the family. Uh, my parents were devout Catholics, and uh, I personally was uh, uh, a nice guy, actually, nice, quiet guy, just the opposite than now. Um, uh, the Wait a minute, you were a nice, quiet guy? Yeah, yeah, top of top of the class in the top school. You know, I can like, see top of the class. I can see top of the school. <laughs> it's just the quiet part. <laughs> yes, yes. I enjoyed uh, hunting. <laughs> I was a hunter then. I stopped being a hunter. I don't like killing people who are, I don't like, I don't like killing anything in general, especially things that people are more vulnerable than me. So um, I, uh, I decided at the age of, at the age of 12, my hometown was sieged and slaughtered by the precursors of ISIS, uh, forms of fanatic groups that were in the name of God, thinking that they were doing the right thing, slaughtering innocent people. Uh, revenging uh, other similar situations, perhaps that were happening across the, across the country, but in general, uh, you know, I don't want to. The, the, the objective today is not to talk about who's responsible and who started all of this, but in my area of the world, killing in the name of Allah has been uh, the trend that has metamorphosed many societies that have passed across the last two thousand centuries from uh, barbarian pagan uh, religions to uh, a diversity that has uh, that has persisted or become lost across the middle east so and we see some of that also across the world nevertheless again this is not the subject today of the, the, of the discussion 
but uh, my hometown was sieged and slaughtered uh, after two, uh, 20 days of siege and two years of uh, blockade, one year and a half of blockade. So, so when you moved to the US, were you considered a refugee? No, no, no. What happened is um, at the age of 12, my, my hometown, which was the second largest town in Lebanon of Christians, was slaughtered and uh, you know we were forced put in ships or fled on foot into the into the woods i was there i was stuck for five days actually in battle i saw a lot of the carnage and my own family was the only one that survived the the slaughter of my neighborhood in uh, on a tuesday night in 1976 in january around january 14 i guess i vaguely remember january 16 january 16. We, uh, by the january 20 we had left we were uh, having uh, fights that were going from house to house people who they would anybody who they, they would put lay a hand on was getting slaughtered and killed sometimes dragged behind cars i mean the atrocities were awful so um you know that of course led me to uh, uh, feel differently i was abducted later also uh, there was a situation of abduction which i escaped fortunately um all of that by the age of 13 and a half, I was already trained in clandestine. I would tell my parents I'm staying over my friends. I would go train in the woods with the militias. And by the age of 13 and a half, uh, in April 1977, I engaged in the first confrontation with the Syrian army and the uh, Syrian army and the militias that were basically attacking us. It was a fight in the, in the streets. That particular first weekend that I got involved in, out of 18 people, we were we lost. We had three casualties that died. These were my peers, people I was brought up with. This uh, neighborhood uh, gang, this neighborhood group of uh, people, men, uh, men, children like me, teenagers like me. Uh, you know, we actually. Uh, uh, had uh, a battlefield that went on for about uh, a kilometer and uh, we held that battlefield especially in 1978 we were sieged for 100 days with street fights i would say by by 19 by the end of 1979 1980 uh, there were only six of us standing left from the old group there were no new recruits and there were enough his stories that have happened during that period that made me realize that if I went on continuing in that situation, I was gonna kill somebody or kill myself. So I didn't really like it. I had to get out. Basically, I was seeing my own colleagues and peers doing atrocities and also going nuts. And I've had some confrontations with them. I just knew I couldn't continue. That wasn't where I belonged. I will skip the story. Yeah, you know, I'll skip the, the, the stories as they don't belong in this particular setting. But I, but I do care that the American Academy members and colleagues of mine at this point, since I'm purging my heart, understand what made me who I am. So I ended up going to um, uh, the American University of Beirut, which was behind enemy lines. So in a sense, here I am, uh, you know, uh, leading a, a clandestine Damurian. Anybody from Damur was considered uh, uh, an enemy. In a sense, they, you, were, you already were targeted. You were like the Sparta guy. You were the guy who in Greece would be labeled as a warrior because our survivors, since we were the largest town, became a main striking force in the Christian militias in Lebanon. 
since we were slaughtered, nobody questioned our loyalties and our feelings. Here I am living in that mixed area where the, dom the dominant uh, gangs and militias were the same people that slaughtered my town. And I'm playing a nice guy who's just studying in school. I was staying in the dorms on campus, and I had also my share of stories then. And that went on till 1982, when the Israeli invasion of Lebanon allowed me to turn it was clandestine into open. It became one of the largest student movement movements in Lebanon. I was president mm. of that student movement. I was also on a dean's honors list and um, you know, doing very well. I could have failed twice and still got into medical school. I got into medical school. I did four months of medical school. But well, then I'm sorry. Let me, let me pause you right there, because before you jump to the medical school thing, I want to go back to what I said. It's like you it, it, you you grew up with a lot of, you know, political, religious turmoil um, in your home country. And so from going from being a fighter to a healer, what how how did you make a decision to go into medical school like to become a physician was there something that happened was there just is this always a dream of yours tell me a little bit more about that of course you know uh, um I, I was gonna get there in a sense by telling you but basically i went into medical school part of the reason why you go to medical school is because you really actually care about i was you care about people. You care about making a difference. At some point, I wanted to be a priest and a missionary. I mean, I, I am somebody who all my life, before even the war, I really cared to give back. I had a family that gave me a lot and I wanted to give back. Because of all the survivor's guilt that I had, and because I had found myself really becoming very self-destructive, not because of all the bad things I did, but all the bit because I didn't. Uh, my conscience is at peace with that. But because of all the, it was just the opposite. I stood uh, stood uh, violently against atrocities. I stood firmly against them. I, again, the story isn't to be told now. Stories are not to be told now. But one of the, it's part of the reasons why I actually had to go to the other side of Beirut, because I had to flee. And because I had, anyway, uh, the point is, uh, I, had gotten to be quite self-destructive, playing many forms of Russian roulettes in my life. With my life, I, I needed, I needed something to really help me deal with the wounds. And I, I can tell you that they, they didn't heal one day. They healed because of emergency medicine. They healed because of medicine. Because perhaps for a survivor's guilt like the one I had, the best form of uh, coping mechanism is sublimation. Sublimation, when you turn the stressor into uh, something positive, where, where what I've learned and seen in atrocities led me to flip it and try to do, to do something for humanity. I quickly became, I mean, here I am in the battlefield getting shelled with organs of Stalin in seven, 1978 uh, in the summer, my beard down to here, not showered for 100 months in the ditch of asphalt with the cement. Uh, cement box on top, armed cement box dropped on top of my head to protect me. And I'm reading one in peaceful story. And I'm realizing that he was one of the first few existentialists. I really am very fond of Tolstoy. Dostoevsky became my next reading. So can you, can you imagine this 15 year old uh, top of the class in the top of school, one of the top schools, sitting down in the middle of a ditch, getting shelled with organs of Stalin and tank fire, reading uh, uh, 1,500 pages of uh, War and Peace or Dostoevsky. So, uh, Barzaz Kamazov. So, you can see 
the metamorphosis that was going on in me. I was very angry at God. I was very angry at life and uh, felt it was absurd, but I had to do something in for it. I stood really literally against any atrocities that were on me. I paid for it by in beatings, torture, etc. By standing up for people that I needed to defend, and I defended those I could defend, and I saved those I could save. Again, these are stories to be told later. But nevertheless, I found myself ultimately um, in AUB, and I led a student movement that tried to bring and bridge everybody together. So I was actually the president of a nationalist sovereign group that was that valued the four pillars of Western civilization. And you can ask me about them in a moment because that's another book I read during the war. So, um, so I basically created this group, which was became the largest group on campus. But I couldn't; they couldn't protect me. I couldn't protect them because we were not armed. You're dealing with thugs and murderers. So how can you protect yourself when they want you because you're a figure that they consider this, you know, as a symbol of what they hate and despise? You're the West. You're the Western civilization. The four pillars of Western civilization are freedom, reason, justice, and love. So if you think about it, you see how we grew it. I mean, we didn't discover justice. We didn't discover reason. That goes all the way back to the Greeks. But the Western civilization adopted all those pillars, and maybe other pillars too, but these four are essential. And to me, they, they are important. Even if I get angry sometimes when I realize that Western nations are not think, doing proper, acting properly or thinking properly with their international strategies, at the end of the day, I can't wash the fact that I am one of them. And these are the values I value. I certainly value those values. And my heart bleeds for every Iranian that is actually currently standing and defending the right of women to, to be free against their oppressors. Yeah. My heart is broken when I see a beautiful Iranian Shiite being hung just because he stood for freedom. These are the true freedom fighters, and we need to love every one of them. Love them. I'm not against them. So we need to be against tyrants wherever they are, essentially. All the ISIS, whether the ISIS is Sunni, Shia, or Christian, we don't want it. Okay? We want tolerance. We want the bridges. Those things were ingrained in me. Actually, in the 18 people that I fought with, there were three Muslims among us. I lost two of them in battle. So to, for those who think that, that, you know, I don't, we, we, I, I can, I have seen friends and value uh, throughout my life. And I don't, there is no black and white for me, a lot of shades of gray. To go back so, to the issue of why I became a doctor. Well, well hold on, because you honestly, you've said so much. Now I want to respond to something else you said. What I really like about you, um, and just as I've gotten to know you just these few short months, is that you are still so politically active and so much still on what you say. You like to fight for those who are the lesser or can't fight for themselves or don't know that there's a you know a war going on so they can't fight. Um, I'm wearing a Fisk University t-shirt. It's my undergrad. And um, this is actually the same institution that John Lewis um, graduated from, you know, the, 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 the conscious of the, the Congress and may he rest in peace. But it, your story just reminds me so much of, I think, 
other similar experiences, not similar being, you know, war, but political protesting and standing up for what's right and speaking up for for others and trying to make the world a better place. And that's always what I hear from you, whether you're talking about your background, whether you're talking about your passion for emergency medicine, you said all of that to me um, just in this conversation. And so I guess now I'm less interested, I'm personally less interested in knowing a little bit about why you wanted to go into medicine, but it seems like that could potentially be the reason why you have been so active and so passionate about AEM because of our mission and our goals as an organization. Well, true, true. But uh, yeah, of course, there is an alignment of principles. I am, I am all for integrity. I am one of the founding members and the current board of director member of the Lebanese chapter of the American Anti-Corruption uh, Institute. So that is a National American Anti-Corruption Institute. I'm certified, I'm a certified manager. I took the exam, took the course, took the training, paid for it, thousands of dollars, basically to become a self-funded, to do that and to, and then I, with the number of colleagues, there are 70 of us now in Lebanon who are actually anti-corruption managers. So we're certified by an American, American Institute. Talk to me about, about what an anti-corruption manager is. I have no somebody idea. Somebody who understands how all forms of corruption, where they can be, that to uphold the value of integrity because the, source of the destruction of society is, is corruption. So if you want to really protect the society and make it stronger, you need to really identify, identify all kinds of corruption or a misuse or abuse of power. You may think of it in the terms of gender or minority or diversification or others, but this is, these are essentially misappropriation or of, of resources for, uh, for uh, self-serving interest. So, you know, the use of power or, you know, to do things that you're not supposed to do if we have proper principles. So corruption, there are some countries in the world where corruption is fought, except at the highest level. So you can be in the upper echelon where corruption is allowed, but everybody else, is, you're not allowed to have corruption. That can reach a certain stability, but it's even better when corruption is minimized and not everywhere across society. That's what makes a society stronger. So, to and these are the things that are the values that I'm trying to bring into my, my region. I always like to remind people, when I, uh, when I applied for um, uh, emergency medicine, I remember the words of one of the founders of emergency medicine. One of the guys who were in Lansing was John Wigginstein, who was my friend. I miss John, I miss Peter Rosen. May God bless them and may, may they rest in peace. But I, uh, one of my one of those guys, Mike Tomlanovich, when he interviewed me as a student, he told me you're going to go back to Lebanon. I said yes, because in your future interviews, don't say that, hmm. because we, we need emergency physicians in Lebanon. That was in the 80s, so you know I've had 33 years of career in emergency medicine. So you know I, I look younger than I am. So. Um, so Mike told me that, and I love him dearly for saying that. I always remember those words. The reason why I remember them is because I knew then that I was going to go back. What I'd like to tell you and tell every member of the academy, I've done my service in the academy. The academy has given me more than any other family, any other com committee. It gave Talk me to me value. about that. What, what, what all value. has the academy done for you? It has given me value. It has given me uh, a mission. It has given me a family. 
You have to remember, I went to the United States with no family. So here I am in the United States and I have no one around me. I, I, told, I didn't click with the Lebanese community. I spent my time integrated fully with all my colleagues and friends. So I was totally immersed. I learned everything there is to be learned about actually the United States of America. I'm proudly an American citizen and nobody will, will mess with that. Nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, I, um, uh, while being an American and while being in America, the, in Lebanon, the foundation, Bashir Jamayil, which was the president of Lebanon, was murdered by the, <laughs> the forces, forces of evil. Uh, they created the found, uh, foundation that gave one, one annual award in 1985, three years, one year after I left. They don't know me, and I'm not a part, political party member. Yes, I fought with the militias, but I'm not a political party member. They actually gave me the Bashir Jamayil Award, the prize. And at that time, I had already matched in UCLA using my grades. I had state honors in Boston University where I did my first year of medical school. And then I went to UCLA when I continued my medical schools for three years. And I didn't even have then a, a green card or a citizenship. So you can realize for a non-US citizen, non-resident to really get into a UCLA medical school, I must have done something right. But at the same time, I met some amazing people that did a lot for me. May God rest his soul, Dean Sampson from BU, and uh, Dean Merkinghoff, if I, I don't know if he's still alive, but Dean Merkinghoff from UCLA, Dean Rajahuri from the American University of Beirut, the father of the current president, as well as Dean William McNary, McNary. I don't know whether he's still alive, I hope he is. These people actually look at, looked at me and they wanted to make a difference, so they allowed me to have a chance to prove that I'm a good student, and I was a good student and I was able to provide while healing, and it took quite a bit of healing. And I'm gonna admit something that I've never told anybody, but the post-traumatic stress disorder that I had was strong enough that I wanted initially to go into psychiatry. Hmm. I spent 11 weeks of research in Menlo Park with the Vietnam vets. I can tell you that I'm perhaps the only non-Vietnam vet, non-Korean vet, that was invited by the Vietnam Vet and Korean Vet Association in Wadsworth VA, in Sepulveda VA, to come every Wednesday to their meeting to join, with, to join with them as a member, not as a doctor. I was a student that they liked so much. They actually asked me to come and tell, you know, heal with them. So in Menlo Park, I realized something important, which is with Harvey Dondersheim, I think was the name of the guy who did the research on. Uh, in Stanford on PTSD, I realized I was doing this for me. I wasn't doing it for others. Hmm. And the moment I realized that, I realized that I don't belong in psychiatry. Hmm. So my, my teacher at Harvard UCLA told me, if you want to go to war, go to, go, to, go to Detroit. So I went to Detroit and I loved it. I loved making a difference. I loved the action. I loved the adrenaline. I loved the variety. And I have quite a bit of energy. So basically, and I what years were you in Detroit? I went as a student in 1987. Then I went back in 1988, stayed till 1992. I was chief resident of the class of hell. Whoever knows this class knows what I mean by that. So I was chief resident for the class of hell. And then I became a faculty there. Okay. And I, and I had my shares. So I love Detroit. I love the streets of Detroit. I love the warehouses of Detroit, the nightlife of Detroit. It also taught me a lot. Yeah, a lot about the importance of diversity, 
the and it made me love the United States more than ever. Detroit. What 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 did you learn about diversity in Detroit? I learned a lot about diversity. Tell me, tell me something you learned. To say the least, that you have to see it from the eyes of the other. Hmm. See the value. See see things as they see it, not as you see it. So. You know, you, not every time, you know, I've seen some of the highest education, highest intellect, and um, I've actually been fond and fallen in love with some of the highest intellect it goes beyond color. So whether my girlfriend was Korean or my girlfriend that was African-American when I was in Detroit, I realized the beauty of uh, humanity. Hmm. No, my dear, you understand my point. Not, uh, not if if you're black, that doesn't mean you're uh, violent. If you're black, it doesn't mean you don't cry over your baby if they get shot. If they shoot each other, that doesn't mean that you don't care about who's being shot. By the way, these are values we see in Lebanon. People, you know, it's so easy for societies to, to, to dehumanize each other. Yeah. So, no, I don't dehumanize uh, African-Americans. Well, good. I'm glad that you don't, or any other racial group. Nobody um, should be, nobody should be dehumanized. You know very well that I believe in the concept of humanity. I am, I'm agnostic, but I do believe that is a creator. I'm not somebody who's stupid not to think that there is a creation, but I really don't care what color I am, except for the fact that it prepared me quite well to understand the value of others. Okay. I love that. So, so, so speaking of that, let, let's let's talk a little bit more about the Academy of Emergency Medicine okay, because you shared with me uh, what the Academy has taught you, what um, EM has taught you, more so training in Detroit has taught you. Um, but so tell me about how you started getting involved in AEM and then tell me about how you decided to run for the presidency. So here I am uh, uh, learning emergency medicine in Detroit. I had Manny Rivers as a mentor. I had Chris Lewandowski, Bruce Thompson, Richard Nowak, all the you know all these names that Enrique Enrique is teaching me and liking me and you know they actually Kazi. You can ask me. I mean, till now I know that the people in Detroit to remember Kazi. So all I can tell you. <laughs> Okay, all I can tell you, uh, coming with his Harley, his ponytail, and his earring, you know. <laughs> we like the Harley part. We definitely uh, like the Harley. Yes, part. yes. yes Daytona Beach twice. <laughs> Harley owners group in East Detroit. You name it. <laughs> I penetrated. I penetrated all kinds of communities except the Lebanese. <laughs> so, um, all I can tell you uh, is uh, in Detroit. Um, I got to, feel, to know what emergency medicine was like. I mean, if a surgeon would tell me, am I not supposed to be Dr. Rakotomi? It was easy for me to say, how many have you done? He'd tell me two. I tell him I've done 25. So all I can tell you is I didn't see myself as inferior to any other specialty. And I did not allow that, anybody to do that to me. You know what I mean? I really defended, defended and defended the value. This in the 80s, you need, still needed to explain to people what emergency what emergency medicine was and what it can do for you for other services so that has been some of what i've done in lebanon also and across the world 
emergency medicine has done a lot to me, but also AEM has done a lot to me and for me. First of all, let me ask you, are you aware of any other organization in the world, any other community who would know, allow a man with a thick accent like mine and with a name like Amin, Antoine Nabi, okay? Or allow me to become to be elected from the membership president. So I really don't like people to, I don't like it when people miss the fact that there are that they are, you know, miss the fact that there are people in medicine in the United States that are less discriminatory than anybody in the world. You know, it's easy for American Lebanese people to say, oh, you know, so and so is they have discrimination, look at apartheid. But they forget what they do here with domestic workers who are not Lebanese. They forget here what they do to each other between the communities, Muslim Christians. I mean, they they have apartheid here too. They have prejudice. So tolerance and inter-community uh, integration, not for everyone, but to a large extent, is very precious and is very dear to me. I'm into integration. I'm into not segregation, integration. So, and do it carefully and smartly, but that requires very strong foundations and institutions that respect that. The academy is one of them. I have contributed to that. I have contributed to an academy that cherishes freedom of, uh, of gender, of, uh, of color, of race, of ethnic origin, of sexual preference. I mean, to me, you know, I, mean, I remember when I wrote a book for medical students, you know, uh, the book for medical students that I did for the academy, Rules of the Road for Medical Students. You know how many people told me I'm crazy, but I included a chapter about, you know, uh, gay and lesbian issues in emergency medicine. So when when did you write that book? That when That's I, already I, ahead I, of its time. 2000, 2003. Yeah. Uh, I did another chapter, which was women in emergency medicine. Yeah. There was, a, there was an article and a chapter 2003, 2013, that I, I'm the senior editor, you know, I'm the senior author also. The chapter was about uh, uh, being pregnant in residency with Margaret O'Leary and other writers. Jeannie Tsai, who wrote about what it feels like to be pregnant during your, your residency, how you can cope with it. Hmm. Learns and tricks, that's just in there, it's in the academy profile. There is so much in the academy for academy members to cherish and to discover. And yesterday we were initiated, thought of, and planned and executed by people from Damur in Lebanon, from that little town which was slaughtered in 1976. You know, we are all connected somehow, Kimberly. And uh, we are, you know, it's nice to connect better, not only in times of war or world calamities, but every day. Especially now that the world is connected, where there's globalization, Everything we do has action and reaction. Whatever we do in the US impacts people in Morocco, or Algeria, in Saudi Arabia, in Iran. Whatever they do impacts us. The world is connected. Some of it is positive, some of it is negative. And it just takes a lot of good thinking to make sure that we good common sense prevails. You, the human, humans are beautiful animals. <laughs> Human, 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 humans are beautiful creatures, and yet they can be so cruel and so ugly. 
Anyway, so um, the academy has been great to me. So while I was in the academy, despite what Michael Tomlanovich, Tomlanovich told me, the award that I had won is an award which asked me to train in something that doesn't exist in Lebanon and to bring it back. You've been the pioneer for emergency medicine in Lebanon, honestly, ever since. Yes, true. And like but I said, so, not, not just Lebanon, but literally Europe and all over the world. In 1985, thank you. In 1985, I was not yet, uh, people had hardly heard of emergency medicine. There were maybe like, what, 60, 70 residencies in the US. So at the time, when I, when I got the award, I decided to look for something that didn't exist anywhere else. So when, when psychiatry was out in my third year, I realized this is not what I want to do. And I loved emergency medicine. And I realized that it didn't exist in Lebanon. I chose to go into emergency medicine so I can bring it back. So, so I'm sorry, I'm, hold on a second then. So how, if, if EM didn't really exist in Lebanon, how did you find out about it? Because I know me, when I found out emergency medicine, it was actually in Ecuador and it was being actually, actually in an accident and casualty setting in a hospital. I researched what the equivalent was in the, in the United States and then found out emergency medicine. So what was your connection? How did you know that you loved it? Was it from the battlefield or how no, did you not, even get exposed? Not the battlefield, Kimberly. It's from the actual, remember, I was in UCLA in 85. I got the, when I got the award, so I already knew I, I wanted something. Okay, something. When I went to Detroit to explore it, because I had done it at Harbor UCLA and I liked it. Okay. So now I've done I've done the rotation. I liked it. I've done trauma surgery. I liked it. Okay. I liked the action. I liked didn't like the tractors and no art time. And I discovered Henry Ford Emergency Medicine. See, it was an easy choice for me. Got it. Got it. Okay. Got it. I just, That's I guess fine. I didn't understand the timeline from, I know you were in Lebanon, then you came to the United States and then kind of from the American University of I just didn't know where, at what point you were even exposed to a, um, to emergency medicine. So well, 1992, I'm done with my, uh, 1991, I'm done with my residency. 1992, I have a green card. Now, because of a J1, H1, you know, transfer, I applied for immigration, essentially, to the H1 status sponsorship. The point is I became a green card holder. That's when I started being able to travel outside the U.S. And the first thing I did was not think about, I joined the academy in 1993, so I'm one of the founding members, but because it, I was convinced that it didn't make sense that people would rape emergency medicine, the business practices upset me. And the devaluation of board certification upset. So two challenges that I did not tolerate. And this was something I said I need to help, you know, protect. At the time, I was at Cedar Sinai and UC Irvine. It was a division of the old UC system to consider emergency medicine second class, and we were only a division. But I didn't work immediately on this. The first thing I did was uh, train and go as a volunteer with the militias in Bosnia. That's another part that the academy members don't know much about. Hmm. So I started stacking my shifts, 20, 21 shifts back to back, a few days of break, stack three months Wait of vacation. Minute. Time out. You were working 20 and 21 shifts a month? Yeah. I didn't even, I didn't even work that much in residency. 
<laughs> well, that okay. was probably before that was you did that before duty hours and stuff like that. But I'm just curious, was that like how, what are the hours on that eight, nine, ten, twelve? See, let me explain. I did I stacked my shifts so I can have a longer vacation, so I don't go on leave of absence. So I can take off instead of going to Puerto Vallarta or Cancun for spring break. I was going to Bosnia because there was a war in Bosnia in 93. So in 93 and 94, I was actually in Mostar in Bosnia Herzegovina with the local militias as a, as a field physician, as an emergency, the subclavian doctor, they called me. They didn't know what emergency. A subclavian was. doctor, like a subclavian artery and vein? Because when you ask, when you tell them I'm an emergency physician, they don't know what you do. They look at you, emergency physician, emergency medicine. What does that do? So when they saw me put my first center line, the nickname, and they speak German, there was maybe one nurse and one 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 Macedonian doctor who spoke English, but everybody else was German and and Croat or Bosniak. You know, I mean, they didn't speak my language. You couldn't communicate. So when I when they saw this guy with the ponytail and the the, the earring and boots, remember the boots, uh, putting his first center line, and they saw how fast I could do it yes. like on a moving target, you know, from Detroit. So on a moving target, when I saw that, the nickname was Subclavian Doctor. And like, what did you do? Emergency medicine, Subclavian Doctor. So and they would go Maniski. Lebaniski, the other guy will answer, Catolico. I wanted mean, to explain why I went there, and frankly, I didn't care what I was working, but nevertheless, right, no, it's one, like, whatever. no one else would take me. <laughs> anyway, I did so, I guess I did well enough that uh, I, I got actually an award and a gift from the president of Croatia, from the Ministry of Health, from the Cardinal, from the lobby. I, I, I mean, that's a part of my life that many people in, in the academy in Lebanon know nothing about. Interesting. I actually, yes, I did Bosnia, the war twice, and then I went to Rwanda <laughs> for the Hutu Tutsi debacle. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, this conversation probably needs to be extended a lot longer <laughs> than I have. But two things, I mean, I really, really, really want to know. I still want to know why did you run for the presidency of AAM? I really want to know that. And then I'll ask my other question. Because when I gave to AAEM, it gave me back recognition and gave me the, the ability to make a change. Okay. Remember that I was also protected by the academic world. I was in academia. So I started the first journal in, and helped really was pivotal in the establishment of the California chapter. I don't want to say I played the main role, but I played the main role. Okay. <laughs> And along with the California a newsletter, which is there is a news service still now that sends regular local news for the state. Things, products that actually everybody appreciated. I was monitoring all newsletters and sending all our members, thousands of them that I actually collected emails for, and I collected them in very smart ways. So basically I had found, I got to a point where I had 20,000 emails of emergency physicians. And I was spamming them. I'm one of the biggest spammers of the era then. So I spammed everybody and I provided, and they started realizing that I had services provided, which gave me credibility at the local level in California and later in the national level. They saw that if I would promise to do such something, I would deliver. And 
that was appreciated by the academy who then gave me the uh, honor of being uh, nominated and then elected president for the california chapter vice board member vice president and then president for the american academy and here i salute my mentors uh, bob mcnamara and joe wood for their role with that regard um, and i appreciate the nights that jim keeney and i spent in different meetings at sem and others talking about the day of emergency medicine so you know when i see something going that is so bad in our specialty the corporatization of healthcare in general is a big travesty and americans need to realize that the business of medicine cannot be sold on the stock market not in pharmacies say that again the business, the business of medicine, medicine does cannot be sold in the, on the stock market hmm. we we invest our money in mutual funds and in and 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 then then they go those shares are become funds and those funds are funding this Ponzi scheme and the Ponzi scheme ultimately somebody is losing and here the public is losing you know hmm. what you see what you see in healthcare has become a business and healthcare can never be just a business right. so this applies not only to emergency medicine and has spread already to other specialties there's practitioners healthcare providers blah 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 you know, you know all kind of hospital corporations I mean sometimes you have a surplus of physicians just because they have Medicare spots to, to, to fill and if you fill them then you spend you know you can bring more money into those hospitals but you create a surplus that is also a problem so it's the business that doesn't belong now we have uh, corporate groups basically developing residency programs because it's a good business for them so all of this is good for, for food for thought for us. The rule should be that corporations, contract medical groups, cannot be sold or bought on the stock market. Once you stop that, you already you already minimize the skimming that is happening and the rape of the specialty. Not of us, of the, the rape of medicine, it's not only in medicine. Maybe we were one of the first places where it became apparent. But that was an important cause that I gave 20 years of my life to. I was in the United States 22 years. Mm -hmm. I lived 20 in Lebanon, 22 in the US. I did seven, sorry, 13 years, 14 years as a faculty in the United States of service within the academy. I remain an active member of the academy, but I do believe, like I told you once before, that there are wonderful people like you to, to continue the battle in the United States. I wish from my heart, yes, you and Jonathan and Lisa and everybody, Bill, we need to retain expertise. We need to continue, you know, uh, uh, developing products and be, you know, uh, standing for what is right. Be the conscience of, of the specialty. Mm -hmm. And I do hope every emergency physician ultimately realizes the value of membership within the academy. So, but that's essential for the academy, but it is essential for the academy and for emergency medicine and for the United States of America to have people like me go back to my region of the world and make a change. One day, one of you may be visiting, one of your family members may be visiting and will have an accident. You also want to make sure that whoever's taking care of them is using the standards we have and we understand and we support. So spreading the concept of good emergency care is essential across the world. Not If we don't do that, 
in the in la, in the uh, in the uh, in the highlands in the in the rest of the world uh, we we're committing a travesty to seek, yeah. so we need to have pe people qualified like me go and stand for your principles stand for tolerance stand for peace stand for forgiveness stand for doing what it takes to protect and uphold humanity i believe look i'm not delusional i realize there is so much i can do i am a man who you know lost his wife i've got three kids i'm raising them alone and i have my medical center my freestanding emergency department that in a impoverished company community where my hometown is so i did it not because i wanted to make money i did it to help a ravaged area that had no health care have an actual freestanding ed I did it with my own cost. It didn't make me money. It lost me a lot of money. But I'm supporting through that the recognition of a beautiful woman, an emergency physician who died, who was my wife, a European one. And uh, I'm also you know, providing the community there uh, an outlet where they can get a freestanding care, an urgent care. So uh, I'm full-time at American University of Beirut. I'm the founding, I'm the founding chairman here. I'm the founding vice uh, vice chairman at the University of California, where we established the first the first full department of emergency medicine in the UC system. We also established the journal that became now the index journal, thanks to the work of Mark Langdorf and Sharam. But I started it as a California Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now I am the chief editor for the Mediterranean Journal of Emergency Medicine. So we're really doing products, conferences. We have an ACGME international accredited residency program that will impress you more than any, as much as any of the best emergency departments in the USA. I would we love have, to see it. We have yeah, EPIC, Magnet, we have EPIC Magnet Joint Commission. We have rapid sequence intubation. We have Glidoscope, CMAX, ultrasound. Everything, uh, everything yeah. an ER doctor could dream of. <laughs> exactly, the cardiac cath, uh, we, we, you know, the stroke therapies, the stroke, stroke, uh, stroke activations. See, we have it. Yeah. So these principles were, were, were established by and settled by a group of wonderful people. I'm not the only one who did that. I, I'm the barbarian who settled. <laughs> and provided the platform for amazing people to really come and continue building it together. It's never one yes. person. And here, my last word to every emergency physician. Okay. I know you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> I was, I, but I, but you were you were saying it all, so I I didn't I wasn't going to ask the question anymore because you were already answering it. You're 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 dropping so many gems. You're saying so many different life goals and and um, which people should look at as their North Star and just really good advice. Um, yeah, so what, so what is, what is one thing that you would want every emergency physician listening to this to know? One, don't overwork yourself. Nothing more than 13, 14, 15, 16 shifts. By the time you do 17 shifts, you're already knocking the door of burnout. Okay. Okay, one. Okay. Two, always have a life. A life, a life where you really do things just to enjoy life, music, acting, sculpting, and always have a five-year plan and a 10-year 10 10 year plan ahead. Never, always regenerate yourself. 
always have a project that is not related only to what you do every day in the emergency department. It can be something like starting an, an RRC residency review committee for the country. It can be something like writing a book about uh, your life experience. It can be something about like sculpting and painting or developing a domain. By the way, I'm doing all of that. But the point is develop, always think ahead and carpe diem, seize life, seize every moment like it's, the, it's your last. Every minute count in deeds, not only for the patient. I love that. Okay, last question, final question. Um, because we're, for now, good, I think we're definitely going to have to do another finale. conversation. But where, huh? It was a good finale. Every minute counts. Remember the motto of the Every academy? minute counts. Every minute counts, not only for the patient. But for you too. Um, okay, so where can people find you if someone is listening to this recording, this podcast, or watching this, um, and they want to talk to you more, they want to get to know a little bit more about your perspective, um, how do they reach you? Email, phone, Twitter, how, how can people contact A-K-A-Z-Z-I at gmail.com would be the easiest, most permanent one, A-K-A-Z-Z-I, Akazi. Okay, well, we will make sure that that is in the show notes for sure. And the other one is the Instagram account that I have. Okay, what's your Instagram? uh, A-M-I-N dot K-A-Z-Z-I dot M-D. Okay, so basically Amin dot Kazi dot M-D. Yes, and I have other Instagram accounts for scouting. I have the Jardin dot Maman, which is J-A-R-D-I-N dot m-a-i-n that's the domain of it's a beautiful domain made of stone that i'm actually developing and i've seen your instagram account um as far as your sculpting and your your jardin so i will i will we will make sure that that is in the show notes as well dr kazi dr amin antoine b kazi because i have to say it all thank you so much (laughs) thank you so much for your time thanks to you kimberly and thanks to the academy Never, yes. never give up the fight. Always have a good one to do. Okay, choose um, and be nice to yourselves. Every minute counts. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over eight thousand emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. For more information about AAEM visit our website at www.aaem.org. Find all episodes of this podcast and our other podcast series on the AAEM website under resources and then publications.